Welcome back to our Ephesians study. We're going to be looking at Ephesians 4. I hope that the Lenten, the Easter series we finished last week was a blessing to you. Uh, we scheduled to complete up to Ephesians 3 right before starting the Lenten series because it was a good place to, to press pause on Ephesians since the first three chapters focus on who God is and what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, who we are in Christ Jesus. And throughout all three of those first chapters of Ephesians, there was only one instruction in all three chapters, which was found in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Let, let's read that really quickly. And Paul writes for us, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Those two remembers are the only two imperative verbs found in all of chapters 1 through 3. All of the other verbs in the first three chapters of Ephesians are the indicative form of verbs. Now, that's until we get into chapter 4, which is what we're starting today. And now that we're entering into chapter 4, we will be taking a closer look at what Christians are to do as believers in Christ. But before we dive into what we do, it's really important for us to be reminded of this grammatical structure in Paul's letter. That the first half of Paul's letter laid all the groundwork, the foundation of what God has done and why God did it. And it's really important because before we do anything, we need to understand all that God has already done for us in chapters 1 through 3. That we don't go telling people all the things that they're supposed to do in chapters 4 through 6 without telling people about God in chapters 1 through 3. Otherwise, you're going to really frustrate them. And you're going to upset them and, and leave them with this distaste for a relationship with God. Because there are a lot of instructions from Paul in chapters 4 through 6. Before we get into them, in the next few months, chapter 4 verse 1 is very important to keep in mind while we receive these instructions. And it reads this. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urged you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. To live out our calling. To practice what we believe. In chapters 1 through 3. But we have to have this strong foundation of who God is. And what God did for us. Before we apply what we are to do. Paul didn't just start with practicing the Christian faith. He started with the doctrines of the Christian faith. We have to know what is true of Christ, what it means to be in Christ before we start living for Christ. And this is really important. It's, it's why there's so much frustration with people who hear about how Christians live without knowing who Jesus Christ is. 
It's why therefore is there in verse 1. Paul is making it really clear that the three chapters that he has just written up to this point are the reasons for what he calls people to do from chapter 4 on. How are people going to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they've been called? How are people going to follow these instructions? What is their foundation to be able to fulfill their calling as believers in Christ? It's not a matter of the will. It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit from within a person to be changed from the inside out. Paul has invested three chapters to share what is true of a Christ follower. And it's in the light of who we are in Christ that we live out these practical expressions, chapters 4 through 6, of grace from God. And before we live a Christian life, we just have to simply be a Christian. There are many people who attempt to live a life as a Christian does. But we have to be a Christian. There are many people who like just go on with these morals and ethics and lifestyle who aren't even Christian. And that gets really discouraging and frustrating because people who do that just kind of pick and choose what they like about Christianity and then they try to incorporate that into their life. And so they'll, they'll pick some of the, the love stuff or the patience stuff or the kindness stuff and whatever else they like and identify themselves with as a Christian. And no, you are not a Christian when you just kind of pick and choose what you want out of the Christianity store. Jesus Christ tells us who a Christian is. It's in chapters 1 through 3. And these are the ones adopted into the family of Jesus Christ. Christ didn't die for people to just pick their favorite parts of Christianity. Who did Jesus Christ die for? Romans chapter 5, verses 7 through 8. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You're not a Christian because you're so smart to choose the right things to believe. You're a Christian because you believe in what Christ did for you. That while you were still a sinner, Jesus, the righteous one, took your sins upon himself so that you may live. And the way that we are to live, as outlined to us in Ephesians chapter 4 through 6, isn't something for us to preach to every single person. We're not to evangelize the way Christians live, our morality our ethics, we are to evangelize the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4-6 through 6 is for believers in Jesus Christ to practice those things because of what we know about God and who we are in Christ according to chapters 1-3. through 3. And these instructions are for people who are saved 
Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. It's not about being religious, moral, ethical. It's not about us choosing to be spiritual. It's because of God's rich mercy, his great love that he saves us. We as Christians came to a realization that we were dead in our trespasses. We recognized there was nothing we could do to set us free from our trespasses, that we're in bondage to sin. Not as a morality, not as an ethic, but to its nature. And there's nothing that we can do about it. That only Christ who sets the prisoner free. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is rich in mercy? He has great love for us. To make us alive together in Christ. So often people have Christianity really backward. There are many people who believe that you have to live as a Christian to become a Christian. You practice Christian living and then God will adopt you. That's wrong. It's by faith that you realize God has adopted you. You take Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord and you'll only do this by receiving the grace of God. And then you live as who you really are. You live as a child of God because you are a child of God. You don't have to pretend who you actually are. But, but there are a lot of people who are just pretending, just living out certain things within Christianity, just kind of like reading through chapters 4 and 6 and doing those things without knowing who God really is in chapters 1 through 3. We don't work towards being forgiven by God. We are forgiven And then we're living into that truth that we're forgiven. And you notice that there's an order to this. That chapters 1 through 3, knowing who God is, what he's done for us. And then it goes into chapters 4 through 6, living out all that is based out of chapters 1 through 3. And then it's, it's both. That we live according to his word. We don't do one without the other. And we also need to recognize who God is before we practice anything. But there is no doctrine without practice, and there's no practice without doctrine. We can't just be all about doctrine and not practice what we know. People are perishing, and they need to know the mercy and the love of Jesus through the practice of practical mercy and love to them. We can't just practice Christianity without doctrine either. Don't forget the order. We need to know the doctrine and then live into the practice. We are children of God. Now act like it. Not act like children of God even though we don't even know who God is. You can't be who you really aren't. Unless you're just an imposter. Pretender. We need both. We need doctrine and 
practice. And you look at how Jesus does this. In Mark chapter 2, there's a paralytic. A paralytic is, is carried by four men who couldn't get near to Jesus because there was this great crowd before them. So what do they do? They, they go on top of the roof and they remove the roof and uh, uh, right above Jesus and they let the paralytic down the opening of the roof. And then what did Jesus say? Get up. Walk. You're healed. He doesn't say any of that. Chapter 2, verse 5 in Mark. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven. That's doctrine. Doctrine. And it's not until verse 11 of chapter 2 that the practice joined the doctrine. And he says this, I say to you, rise, pick up your mat, and go home. It's both. We need to address the spiritual needs and the practical needs. Doctrine and action. And this is walking in a manner worthy of calling. Not earning anything, but realizing Jesus Christ has done all that is needed. And we walk in the manner worthy of the call, calling to which we have been called. What have we been called to? We've been called to light. To purity. To holiness. To peace. To life. To unity. There are calls made to people by the word of God. Mark chapter 1 verse 15 says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We're all called to that. Matthew 11 verse 28, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Those who call Jesus Lord Hear these calls. Have you heard this call? He calls you by name. He knows who you are. And this all-important spiritual matter is between you and God right now. Yes, there's a greater community in all of this, but perhaps the Lord is speaking directly to you right now to tell you your sins are forgiven. Do you believe it? You have to believe it. How will you respond to this call? For those of us called by God, we are to live into this calling. And it is to be obvious who we belong to. Not to earn our place, but to just simply be who we really are. Children of God. And there are a couple of things Paul really wants to hit home. And that is about unity. He's calling us to unity. Skip down to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. That our walk is to be different from the world. We walk as Christ. How does the world walk? Look at verse 19 in chapter 4. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. You see that Ephesus 2,000 years ago was not all that different from the Bay Area today. It's, it's nothing new. People are people. Same inhumanity, same rebellion, same selfishness, same pride. 
And Paul is telling believers in Christ who understand chapters 1 through 3 that you're no longer part of that and you don't walk like that group. You've been changed to live according to what we know. And and this is very normal for everybody, right? You're, You're different from when you were a child. You're different from when you were a teenager, a young adult. You're, you're different. You, you live into who you are right now. And so, as a child of God, you live into who you are. God has adopted you into his family. You are now clothed with Christ's righteousness. And you now have fellowship with many others of the same family. Where you walk, how you walk, who you walk with, that has all changed. Because it's not all about you anymore. And you have a greater mission To call people to life. You walk where Christ is needed. You walk confidently in places of darkness because Christ is in you. You purposely walk where there is fear and pain because you can minister to that. Because you belong to Christ. You can do this. And everyone else should be able to see this unity and this purity. Not just us as individuals, but also us as a community of believers. Now, how will people be able to see this in us? Look at verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So let's just cover this one by one and look at humility first. Humility wasn't seen as a virtue in Ephesus. I mean, to, to go there and be lowly, I mean, no one there wanted that. This, this was a place that was all about self-love. This was a place where people talked about how great they were and they worshipped the, the god, goddess Diana. And so much like today, many people today, they have a propensity toward self-love. And they have a real difficulty in resisting to share their every thought, their every opinion, their every achievement. They tend to want to share their greatness with the world. Isn't that much of what Twitter and Instagram are about? Humility is not the word that pops into mind when reading those posts. Yet how are we to be? 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. We think we're all that because we can plant or we can water. And we forget that God is ultimately the one who gives growth. We think we have so much influence and power that we're so gifted. But so much of how we think is simply pride. Because who gave you what you have? 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You see, God gave it to you. So what is there to boast about? You didn't like earn it. God gave it to you. And many of us have been given different gifts, but it was God who gave those gifts. So there's really nothing for us to be prideful about. Now back to Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with 
all humility. Not a little, not some, all. And this is what is so great about community. It it allows us to practice this. And in a place like the church, there are a lot of opportunities to practice. To practice humility in the church is actually very easy because opportunities abound. You don't have to wait for these opportunities to be assigned to one. You can just go and take action on many things. Not because you feel like it, but because we're called to action. You can just go and take the lowly seat. You are empowered by God to take a divine action of humility when you serve. To serve without anyone knowing, to serve without any recognition. You see, pride is extremely dangerous. And if you look at every division of unity, pride is lurking there. There's some semblance of pride that's lurking in every form of division. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness. Now gentleness was also another virtue that was not highly valued in Ephesus. Keep in mind, this is a port city. This is a huge city of trade and commerce. And if you were just to be kind of lowly and gentle, you would not get very far in this place of trade and commerce. This is a place that's aggressive in nature. How is one to survive by being gentle in an environment like this? Now the gentleness being spoken of here is a word used to describe um, a dog, like a, a guide dog for the blind. Right? That, that you put that dog, that, that guide dog for the blind, you put that dog in any setting and it is trained to be calm, self-controlled, disciplined, obedient. It knows what it needs to do no matter how crazy the environment that is happening around them, no matter how loud things are, no matter what's going on around them. They know what they need to do. And this is how we are to be with God as our master. That we're in all of this craziness. But we know what we need to do. We're calm. We're self-controlled. We're disciplined. We're obedient. We're not rabid, wild, savage dogs. You see, prior to being a child of God, that's what we were. We were just these wild, aggressive dogs that were just out for ourselves and surviving. But we have this much higher calling now with purpose and mission. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now continuing on in Ephesians 4 in verse 2, with all humility, gentleness, and then with patience. Now this is speaking to the capacity of looking at things in the long term. Long term thinking. 
to not react with knee-jerk reactions, but to respond thoughtfully with the long view in mind, to, to endure, to persist, even when things are not good. And Jesus had to do a lot of this with his disciples. You think about this. Three solid years, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year of arguing about who's the greatest, who sits where in heaven. Let's build tents at the transfiguration. I'll never desert you. Let's call down thunder. All this stuff that Jesus had to do. But Jesus was so patient with them because he knew they were works in progress and he had the long view in mind. Just as he looks at us and just as we are to look at other people, to be patient with one another because we're not done yet. We're not done yet. And yet this is so difficult, isn't it? It's so much easier to expect it of other people to have patience with us, but it's so difficult to extend patience to other people. So easy to be impatient with other people. In our faith community, we've been challenged this past year. We've had a lot of challenges. Even though we haven't met, there's been stuff going on outside of us meeting. And every decision that we make, there are people that always disagree. Always. It doesn't matter what the decision is. There will always be people who disagree. Even my very statement that I just made about disagreeing, again, guarantee you there's someone listening there who's thinking, we don't always disagree. We always disagree. And how we all need to practice humility, gentleness, patience with each other. Now my hope is that we gather together soon and, and we're going to need to practice these muscles because we haven't done it in a while and, and we need them to get stronger. And for some, for some people, they've already left. Something that has caused them to be divided from us. And that this year, this past year, something has been just too much for them. And they've left. I want to encourage you as our brother Paul did. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another. Now what is bearing with one another? It means to withhold what would be natural. Like the natural reaction you'd have if someone yelled at you or struck you or offended you or did something to you. That you are to hold back what someone deserves in word or action in response to them. And there are things that we want to say. There are things that we want to do to each other but it divides. And Paul is instructing, bear with one another. Don't do that. Don't do that thing that you're thinking. Don't, don't say it. Hold your tongue. Bite your tongue. Don't say those divisive things. Don't do those divisive things. Don't type that divisive thing. Don't put on Twitter that divisive thing. 
extend a mutual tolerance toward one another. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Love is the binder. It's what holds all of this together. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Every church community will deal with this. And any church community that is eager to maintain unity will have all of these characteristics found in verse 2. And if we lack any of those characteristics, we will get a sense of division in our faith community, in our church. Every faith community has argumentative people, has contrarian people, and yet even they can change. And it might be their personality, but they can learn to hold their tongue, sit in the lowest seat, look at the long view, abstain from what they want to say and what they want to do. You see, we just have to have the greater community in mind, the family of God in mind. Is our heart toward unity? And if it is, what should be done and what should not be done in order to support unity? And are we eager for it? There has been a lot of division in the church. Why? Because not everyone is grounded in humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. And I'm not saying it's just those people. I'm saying it's us. All of us. Leadership in this church as well. And you notice that verse 3 instructs us to be eager to maintain unity. The scripture doesn't tell us to create unity. It tells us to maintain it. Why does it say maintain? Because we don't create unity of the spirit. God does that. He already did that. We already have unity within the spirit with God. And the church of Jesus Christ is united no matter how bad we foul things up because this is Christ's church. We're not going to be able to divide his church. We're not that powerful. We can divide our church, but we're not going to divide the grand church. You can go anywhere in the globe. I've met brothers and sisters in Christ from all over the world, and something you find out is that you have unity with them no matter where you're from, what language you speak, what their culture is, what race they are, what socioeconomic class, whatever those differences are, we're united in Christ. It's a beautiful thing. It's an amazing thing. I, I don't know how it actually works. It's just wonderful. And it's not a unity that any of us created. You step into it. It was already there. God created it. And we just go about maintaining it. The people in Ephesus totally understood this because the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, they could not stand each other. There was so much division in the early church. That's why Paul writes this. But, but they were made new. And it was based on the doctrine found in chapters 1 through 3 that they needed to understand this before Paul could instruct them on what they were to practice in chapters 4 through 6. And, and unity does not mean we go with what the majority wants. Unity doesn't mean that we just go with whoever's the most vocal or influential or most powerful, the basis of our unity is found in doctrine. 
in the word of God. That's where it's found. Not people's wisdom. We go to the word of God. Jesus prayed this, John chapter 17, starting in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me, loved them even as you loved me. You see how important doctrine is. The unity in the Trinity is the foundation of the unity that exists in us as Jesus Christ's church. When we go into oneness, covered in the following verses in chapter 4. That's doctrine. And we'll be talking more about doctrine as we move into practices in chapters 4 through 6. But I want to acknowledge that there is division in our church that has taken place this past year. There's some unity that needs to be maintained. We need to work on that. We know chapters 1 through 3. We know these doctrinal things. Now we have to put into practice chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Let's pray. Lord God, you are a healer. You are a peacemaker. And we pray, Lord, for the divisions within our church that we would be eager to maintain unity. Help us to keep in mind how we are to practice humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Lord, please be our guide. Please forgive us of the missteps that we've caused to put us in this place now that have caused divisions. And I ask, Lord, for healing to take place. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, please take out your communion elements and um, let's take communion together. And if you are divided with a brother or sister in the Lord right now, uh, please refrain from this sacrament. There's some work for you to do, some things you need to practice prior to this, to exercise humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, and encourage you to do that first there. As this is a symbol of Christ's body broken for us, he has allowed us to come together in unity. This is what unites us, is Jesus Christ. Let's take this in honor of him. We also have the fruit of the vine, the blood of Christ spilled for us so that we can have peace 
with God, with one another. We take this in remembrance of Christ and we do this until his return. Lord Jesus, you're in control of our church. This is your church. We ask, Lord, that we would walk in accordance to your will, that we would reflect your love, mercy, grace to one another and to those who don't know you. In your name, amen.